Today, we're going to talk about, Paul's going to encourage the Thessalonian believers to be steadfast in expectation. Steadfast, as you know, is a word that means uh, solid as a rock, uh, firmly grounded, uh, certain, sure, uh, staying uh, focused and and, uh, immovable and unwavering. And today he's going to talk about, he's encouraging the Thessalonians and ourselves to be steadfast in expectation. Uh, Most of us know what expectation is. Uh, so, for example, if you're a small child, or if you have small child, children, uh, or if you were a small child, you all know that the expectation that takes place in early December as uh, children anticipate uh, and look forward to Christmas morning. Uh, pregnant women understand ex- expectation because they, they get a due date and they, they look forward to that day when they can deliver the baby. If you're, uh, for example, a, uh, an engaged a bachelor, uh, there's an expectation that there's a wedding date uh, coming sometime soon. And so there's an expectation of all that. For some husbands, not for me, because I don't have that kind of a wife, but for some husbands, you understand expectation when your wife is getting dressed and getting ready to go out for dinner. Uh, it takes uh, some reason, uh, some women longer than men to get prepared for that. I, I don't know why. My wife doesn't do that. So expectation is something we all understand. And, and it, you know, normally, except for the husband example, it has, has some day in the future. Unless your wife drive, uh, dresses really, really slowly, usually it takes place in the same evening. But for others, expectation has got a day. There's a day out. There's a wedding day. There's a delivery date. If you're a student, you look forward to have this expectation of completing your classes, getting to that graduation day. And so we all understand what expectation means. And, and so Paul uh, encourages the Thessalonians to be, to be steadfast in, in expectation. Just by way of reminder, Paul had written this, this letter that we call First Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica. Paul had been on his second missionary journey, had preached the gospel in the city there, which is in modern-day Greece. And some of people had become Christians. They trusted in Jesus, and the church was formed there. Paul wanted to go back, but he couldn't for various reasons, so he sent his, his friend Timothy to go visit the church there at Thessalonica, and Timothy did. And he brought back two things. He brought back, one, a good report about the Thessalonians, that they were doing well as a church. They were staying solid and firm. And the second thing is he brought back some questions. The Thessalonian believers had some questions, and, and Timothy brought them back uh, for Paul to answer. And, 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 and a few of the questions that he came back with had to do with the second coming of Jesus. We all know that Jesus is coming back. That's a well-known fact. In fact, in our Bibles, in the New Testament, that idea that Jesus is coming back, that fact, is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. So it isn't something that we wonder about and say, well, I wonder if Jesus is coming back or not. He is. And so we see this very clearly. Just to give you an example, in John chapter 14, verse 2, you can follow on the screen or in your Bibles. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus was talking to his apostles, to his disciples, and he says this. He says, in my Father's house, that is in heaven, are many rooms... If it were not so, would I not? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus made it very clear that He's coming again to get His believers and take them to these rooms in uh, in the place where where God is. Now Jesus lived for uh, 33 years, and then He was crucified. He died on the cross, a cruel death. And they buried him, and three days later he rose from the dead, and then he wandered around in the region for about 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And that ascension where Jesus was taken off the earth and, and raised bodily into heaven is captured in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, which we'll read. It says, When he, as Jesus, had said these things, and as they were looking on, they being the, uh, a few of the disciples, were watching, it says, He, as Jesus, was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so Jesus is standing there with his disciples, and he he ascends into heaven in bodily form. And then these two guys in white robes, which we understand to be angels, explain to the disciples what Jesus had already told them. They said he's coming back, but they also told him how he's coming back. They said he's coming back in the same way that he went up into heaven, which is in bodily form, in the air, in a cloud. And so it's very clear that that's, that that's taking place in the future at some point. Now, the fact that Jesus is coming back can probably best be described as the great, glorious, best expectation that we as Christians have. By far. It's the best expectation. It trumps every other expectation that we have as Christians. And so Paul is going to encourage the Thessalonians as well as us to be steadfast in that expectation. Jesus' second coming, as most of you will know, will usher in a number of other events that will change the world. In fact, it will end the world as we know it today. And it's that day in the future. We don't know when it will happen. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's in the future a lot of events will take place. So let me just run through that and give you the big picture to remind you. Sometime in the future, Jesus is going to come back. Christians will be resurrected and will be given glorious new bodies. And when Jesus comes back, he will take them off the earth and take them into heaven. Jesus will then usher in a period of time, a time of trouble and suffering for the world, which we call the tribulation. Jesus will come back to earth and will reign on earth for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, people who have not trusted in Jesus, that is non-believers or non-Christians as we call them, will be judged. And for their sins, they will be punished in hell. The heaven and the earth as we know it today will be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth will be created and formed. And all those who call Jesus their Savior, who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, will be united with Jesus and will go to this new heaven and a new earth, and will reside there with Jesus forever. That's the summary of all that takes place in the end days. Now, there's some slight disagreement or maybe some uncertainty about exactly the sequence of that. What will happen first? What will happen second? But I don't want to talk about that today. Let's just focus on the main thing. All Christians are in agreement that Jesus is coming back and will gather Christians to him and take them to heaven. And we all agree that, that there will be a time in the future when, when unbelievers, those who have not trusted in Jesus, will be judged and will be sent to hell. Now, the Christians in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian believers that Paul led to Christ and the church was formed there, they knew this. Paul had told them. The fact that Jesus is coming back is an essential part of our faith. So there's no doubt that, that Paul would have told the Thessalonian believers about that. But the Thessalonian believers at the time Paul is writing this are new believers, It's a new church that's formed there. Everybody in that church was a new believer. And so it's it's not uncommon or wouldn't be unheard of for us to think that maybe they they had some questions. They didn't understand the details of Jesus coming back. And so it's clear from the letter that they gave these questions to Timothy and said, would you take these back and, and, and ask Paul to answer them for us? Now, Paul doesn't specifically outline the questions that he got from Timothy from the Thessalonians in his letter. But it's easy to figure out what the questions were because the answers are pretty clear. So the questions are, are primarily three questions. 
The first question is, is what happens to believers who die before Jesus returns? The second question is that they had is, when will Jesus return? When? And the third question is, what should we do while we wait for Jesus to come back? What, how should we act? What should we do while we're waiting? And so Paul, in his letter, answered uh, three of these questions. And in doing so, he gave them and us what is probably the clearest description of what happens when Jesus comes back. And so when we come to the section of Scripture, it is very cool because we not only get the answers that Paul has to those three important questions, but we get a lot of clarity, we get a lot of details in this section of Scripture that we don't get anywhere else. So if you would, turn with, your, with me uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It will start in, in verse 13, and you can follow it on the screen or in your Bibles as we go. So the first question that the Thessalonian believers had is, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? And I think what they were thinking is they're thinking, oh, they missed it. They died before Jesus came back, and therefore somehow they're going to miss out on Jesus' second coming. And Paul is going to explain to them that that's not the case. Beginning in verse uh, uh, 13 of chapter 4, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So this word asleep here means dead. He's talking here about Christians who have died, and he uses the word asleep. So substitute the word dead for that. He distinguishes here between Christians who have died and non-Christians who have died. He says there's, there's a difference here. He's not suggesting when he says when he says that you should not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's not suggesting that when a Christian dies, we don't grieve. He's suggesting we grieve in a different way than those who have no hope. Those who have no hope, he's talking about those who have not trusted in Jesus. Anybody who has not trusted in Jesus has no hope when death comes around. They have no hope. Why? Because a non-Christian, like all of us, like everybody else in the world, has sinned. We all sin. Christians and non-Christians alike. But for a non-Christian, he hasn't trusted in Jesus as his Savior. Therefore, Jesus' death on the cross has not paid the penalty for his sins. And so when he dies, he stands before God, and God says, you're full of sin, you must be punished, and the punishment for that sin is hell. And so, at the funeral of a non-Christian, it is double grief. There's grief because the person is gone and we will not see them again. And we will miss them. And there's grief in that. But there's a tragic grief that we know that they're not going to be in the presence of Jesus. They're going to be in eternity in hell. And that's a horrible thing. But for a Christian, it's a different story. For a Christian... Jesus died, and his death on the cross has paid the penalty for their sins. Their sins have already been paid for. And so when a Christian dies, he stands before God, and God looks at him and says, You're spotless. You're white as snow. You're sinless. Why? Because they led a really good life and didn't do all the things those other people didn't know. Because all their sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so God looks upon them and sees none of that. It's been paid. The debt is paid. It's gone. 
And so when a Christian dies, we grieve because we will miss them. They will no longer be here for us to talk to and to see and to visit with. And so we grieve, and that's, that's a healthy thing to grieve for that. But there's also joy. There's also the joy knowing that even though they're not here, they are, their souls are in heaven with God immediately, directly. And so the funeral of a Christian is different. Some of you are here in this very room on Thursday afternoon for the memorial service for C.C. Benningfield. C.C. was a member of our church here, a lovely woman, 47 years old, died from breast cancer. But she had trusted in Jesus. And so we had these mixed emotions. There was a true grief there because we will not see C.C. for a long time. And we don't downplay that. We don't, we don't squash that. You must grieve for that. But for those of you who were here on Thursday, you also saw the joy. Cece wrote a letter that was read. Her joy in knowing that when she died, her body would stay here, but her soul would go immediately in the presence of Jesus. Where there's no cancer and there's no pain. And so there was real joy there. But mixed emotions. But for C.C., as well as for any other Christian who dies, that's not the end of the story. And Paul, in this next section of Scripture, says something else takes place. And the details here are rich, and so let's read it. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's talking about Christians who have died. He said, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left walking around until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is, they will not go before those who have died. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the, trumpet of the, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. When Jesus returns, there's this marvelous event that takes place. It happens pretty quickly, but there's a lot of things going on. It's detailed and clear that, that Jesus will come back to earth. He'll come back in the same way that he ascended into heaven. How did he ascend into heaven? He ascended into heaven in bodily form in the air on the cloud, just like Paul describes. And we will hear some things. We will hear a cry of command, the voice of the archangel. We will also hear the trumpet of God. These are audible things. We will hear those things. And then the bodies of Christians who have died will be resurrected at that very moment. Some of them will come out of the grave and be reassembled in midair. Others, I, I don't know how it works. Those that have been in the grave so long have decomposed into carbon dioxide and water, and somehow God will make all those molecules come together from, from all over the earth, and they will reassemble into a body. And that body will then be reunited with the souls of the Christians who've died. And they will ascend into heaven where Jesus will catch them in the cloud. And at the same time, Christians, those who are walking around when Jesus comes, will hear the, 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 the trumpet and the call. It will find ourselves suddenly rising. And as we rise, our bodies will be transformed. They'll be changed. 
into glorified bodies. And Jesus will catch us up in the cloud. And once he's caught us all, millions of us, he'll take us into heaven in bodily form. Now, this event is fantastic. I, I can't think of the right words to describe that event. As Christians, that expectation for me is, is, is palpable. It's, it's, I can't wait for that day. I remember my own wedding, and I was looking forward to my wedding day, and it was coming slowly. It's nothing like this feeling of Jesus coming back. We call this event the rapture because the Greek word which is, which is caught up in the air, which is this Jesus catching us in the air. The Greek word for that is rapturo, and so we call this event the rapture. And this rapture will be dramatic, it will be visible, it will be audible. First thing we get is this command, this shout of command. Now, I don't know what the shout of command is going to be. It might be something like, hey, all you Christians, let's go! Could be that. But that doesn't quite capture, I don't think, the magnitude of what's taking place. It's something more akin to the Aggie scoring a touchdown. What do we go? We go, yeah! That's the shout of command that I think we're going to hear. And I don't know about the trumpet because I don't play horns, but it's going to be something loud, and it's going to be a blast like a, like a freight train or something. It's going to call all those dead bodies out of the graves. And call all Christians who walk the earth to be ready because we're going to levitate. We're going up. And as we go, this crazy, strange thing happens in midair. I don't know how it works. God created the world out of nothing. He can pull bodies together out of carbon dioxide and water molecules that are spread all over the world. We'll get new bodies. Paul doesn't give us much detail here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gives us this story, this, this more detail about the bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's a mystery to me how this works. And Paul says, It's a mystery to him too. He says, We shall not all sleep, that is, we shall not all die, but we will all be changed, we'll all be transformed, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. There's that trumpet again. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Just like Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. We, those who are walking, will be transformed, changed. For this perishable body, this thing here, must be put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? These new bodies we get, Paul says, are going to be two things. They're going to be imperishable and they're going to be immortal. Imperishable means that we, we have these bodies that won't decay. They won't grow old. They won't get gray hair. They won't lose their hairline. You won't get cancer. They're, they're, they're imperishable. They, they, they don't break down. They don't decay. They don't rot away. They don't get flabby. Immortal, we all know what that means. Immortal means they'll never die. They'll live forever. And as a 61-year-old guy, this is important to me. Because this year I used a sentence I've never used before in my entire life, and it's this, I used to be an athlete. You chuckle. It's not funny. 
Now you're chuckling again. It's still not funny. Stop laughing. I'm looking forward to getting one. So that's the answer to their first question. He says, the Thessalonians said, well, well what about it? I said, what, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus comes? Paul says, well, they get first in line. They get first in line. Jesus comes, they get first in line. Those who have already died. Jesus will resurrect their bodies and re, re, reunite them with their souls. And they'll get perfect bodies, glorified bodies. And Jesus will catch them in the air and he'll take them into heaven. And what will happen to Christians who are still living when Jesus comes? Well, they get second in line. Not five years later, but just second in line, right behind each other. And they get, and they get drawn up in, in, into the air, and as they're going, their bodies get transformed and get changed into perfect bodies, glorified bodies. And when they're all gathered there in the air, Jesus grabs all of them and takes them into heaven. And that's a good question, and that's a good answer. But they had another question. They said, when will Jesus return? It's obvious from Scripture that the Thessalonians believed that Jesus would come any day. Any day. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says to them this, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see a little bit of impatience on Paul's part here. Part, Paul feels like he's already told them this, but he knows they're young Christians. He says, you don't have any reason for me to write to you, but he's writing to them, and he's reminding them. And this phrase he uses here is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used all throughout our Bibles. It's a phrase that talks about that time period when Jesus comes back and these other events take place. The day of the Lord, is, it's, like that, it's like that wedding day. It's like that graduation day. It's like that delivery date, due date for a pregnant woman. It's that time period that we're looking forward to expectantly. And Paul says, when will it come? When will Jesus return? He says, will it come like a thief in the night? And any of you that have ever been burgled know exactly how that is. The thief doesn't call you in the afternoon and says, hey, you're going to be home at 11 o'clock and I'm going to come burgle you. No, you don't get any warning. He comes unexpectedly. He comes quietly. He comes when you, when you least expect him, when you're not looking. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, he described it this way. He said, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is Jesus telling him when he's coming back. I'm coming back, but not when you expect. In fact, Jesus tells them in Mark 13, he says that we, we, we don't know, and in fact, we cannot know when Jesus will come back. He said he's not going to reveal that to us. Mark 13, verse 32 says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that's the answer to the second question the Thessalonians had. When is Jesus coming back? And the answer is we don't know. Jesus will come back like a thief in the night when we're not expecting him. But he's coming back. His return is, is imminent. It could happen at any time. It's looming. It's impending. It could happen right now. It could happen tomorrow. We don't know. And then the third question the Thessalonians had, which was, well, how should we, 
how should we act? What should we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back? And this is a good question. And we know that from Paul's answer and from Scripture that there are about, about four things, generally speaking. won't be dogmatic about this, but there's four things that we're encouraged to do while we're waiting. The first one is be ready. Be ready. Paul says that in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 4, he said, But you're not in darkness, brothers, that that day, that is when Jesus comes, that that day surprise you like a thief. You're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness, he says. And then he says, so then let us not sleep as others do. Now, this kind of sleep, he's not talking about dying now. He's talking about taking a nap. Don't be lazy and fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Keep awake and be sober. This be sober part has got nothing to do with alcohol. He wants them to have be solid, serious, clear-headed thinking, to be steady, to be steadfast, and to be awake, to be ready when Jesus comes. This reminds me of a story when I was a young guy. My mother, at least for the first, well, probably to her death, I suspect her entire life, she wondered why she had three boys in such a short period of time. She had seven kids, and the first three were those like chock or block back to back. And I was the third one. I was the best. Maybe. Anyway, when I was 18, my brother was 19, my other brother was 20. Uh, my parents, foolishly, decided to go on a little vacation. They said, we're going to go see our relatives, whatever. And uh, she, my mother came up to us. She, she, she stood in the kitchen with all three of us. I still remember this. It's kind of silly. But she said, look, she said, we're coming back Saturday afternoon. No parties. Have the house clean when we get back. You know what we heard? Blah, 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 blah. They're coming back Saturday afternoon. That's all we heard. So Friday rolls around the day before the Saturday that they're supposed to be coming back. And about midnight, she and my dad pull in the driveway in the station wagon. Like 12 to 16 hours earlier than she said which wouldn't have been a problem, except that we had a party going on at the house at the time. <laughs> well, the house was full of people. We had the rock and roll music playing. There were people spilling out on the lawn. The whole place was a mess. And my mother walks in the front door, and I go, Hey, Mom, whoa, you came back early. And she said, Yeah, we did. We decided to come back early. And I said to her, well, Mom, we're not ready. <laughs> so, so go away, come back tomorrow like you said, and we'll be ready then because then tomorrow afternoon we won't be having any party and the place will be clean. Well, my mother did not appreciate that response, and neither will Jesus. Jesus said we're to be ready. Jesus said in Luke 12, 40, he said, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in Mark 13, 33, he said, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Be ready. So that's the first thing. Be ready as you're waiting. Second thing we're told to do while we wait is to live godly lives. Live godly lives. And second Peter, Peter has said that as we wait for Jesus, while we're waiting, we should live lives of holiness and godliness. Second Peter 3.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There we see it again. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. He said, you ought to be the sort of people that live lives of holiness and godliness. 
And in verse 14, he said, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting, be diligent to be found by him, that is by Jesus, without spot or blemish. Peter said, live lives of holiness and godliness. And when Jesus shows up, you should be spotless and without blemish. Paul wrote a letter to Titus, a good Christian man, and he said, in this present age, it's the same verse that we talked about earlier when we were singing that song. He said, in this present age, as you wait for Jesus, you should live godly lives. Turning to Titus 2 again, verse 11 to 13 says, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? Well, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, And to live how? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, here and now, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, it's very clear. He says, abandon or renounce ungodliness, which is to refuse to do anything that that is contrary to God and to His commands. He says to reject worldly passions. We live in a world that has a lot of passions, and the worldly passions he's telling us to reject are things like, 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 like love of money and sexual immorality and all those other things that our culture does has worldly passions for. And he tells us to live our lives in self-control, not wild and permissive. And he tells us to live upright and godly lives, decent, honest, truthful lives, holy, good, righteous lives. And we as Christians have this conflict because we're human beings, after all. We're here on this earth. And yet Jesus is telling us, and Paul is telling us, don't act like all those other people do. This is very countercultural. This is very radical. Don't behave like that. And you say, well, why not? I'm a human being. This is my home. It's not your home. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we are aliens here in this world. And our home is in heaven. And we are waiting for Jesus to come back, to grab us up and take us there. So that's the second thing. One, be ready. Two, live godly lives. The third thing we should do is make disciples. Make disciples. This is the most important command that Jesus gave us. We call it the Great Commission because it's great. It's the biggest thing Jesus told us to do. He said, don't go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that's the purpose of our church. Our purpose statement as a church, the Temple Bible Church, is to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. We just copied it. Why should we make up a new one? And so that involves sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, telling them that Jesus is coming back, and talking to them and praying for them and and, and trying to get them to the point where they trust and place their faith in Jesus. So when Jesus comes, they'll be ready. They won't be left out. And for those Christians who become Christians, those who place their faith in Jesus, we're to come around alongside them. People who who are a little bit behind us in our spiritual journey, and we can be able to pour into them and allow them to become mature Christians. And that's what we call discipleship. And so that's what we're supposed to do. The third thing we're supposed to do while we're waiting 
for Jesus to come back, or to be ready to live godly lives and make disciples. And then finally, the, third, the fourth thing that we've told to do while we're waiting is to encourage one another. Encourage one another. We see this very clearly in Paul twice in this section of Scripture, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, after he's described the return of Jesus, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And he says it again in chapter 5 and verse 11, which is at the end of the section we just talked about. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And he says to encourage one another right after this section of Scripture because he knows that this section of Scripture, the fact that Jesus is coming back, is the most encouraging thing we can have as Christians. And so it's easy. It's easy to encourage one another in this, isn't it? We're encouraged in several different ways. We're encouraged because we know the future. We know the future. We live in a culture where people are running around, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what's going to happen when I live and when I die. I don't know what's going to take place, and we know what's going to take place. We don't have to speculate. We know that we're going to live our lives and we may die and our body will go in the grave and our soul will go immediately in the presence of Jesus. And if we don't make it quite that far and Jesus comes back sooner, which is great, we'll find ourselves levitating and Jesus is going to grab us and take us home. And we know this. So we don't have to worry about that. Next thing we know is that we'll be rewarded. We live in a society where people are out there trying to get stuff, rewards for themselves. They want to meet this goal and do that goal and make that sales goal and get that promotion and, and get all these rewards. It's an endless cycle. It's a, it's, a, it's a rabbit race. It's a treadmill that keeps running faster and faster and faster no matter how many rewards you get. But we know that when Jesus comes back, he's going to reward us. We don't know exactly where we're going to get. We're going to get some kind of crowns. Not because we're particularly good people, but because we're washed by the blood of Jesus because of who we are, not of what we've done. So we can rest easy in that. Say, fine. My grades weren't as good as they might all those other kids would be, but I'm going to get my reward. I'm hanging out of that. We know that we'll go to heaven. Everything we know about heaven says it's different than this, right? It's different than this. It's much much, much, much better. Because in heaven, there won't be any of the stuff that we hate here. There won't be any sorrow. There won't be any sadness. There won't be any tears. There won't be any, any decay. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any suffering. There won't be any sin. So we have that to look forward to, and that's encouraging because we think about the stuff that takes place in this world and we look forward and we say, we're going to a better place. Just hang on. And we get new bodies. The older I get, the more I love that. Because I get all these aches and pains and I, and I can't run as far as I used to be able to run and I can't jump as high as I used to be able to jump and I can't do the kind of things that I want to do. Because I'm 61 and I'm heading in that way, and every time I get up and I have a new pain in my neck or my back or my knees hurt or whatever it is, it's a good reminder. You're getting a new one, John. Hang on. And when I get my new one, I can tell you I'm going to love it. So I'm going to get up in the morning, I'm going to run a marathon, and in the afternoon I'm going to do a triathlon, and in the evening I'm going to climb a mountain. And I ain't going to be sore the next day because I'm going to go do it again. I'm looking forward to that. 
Because I got the 61-year-old body with a 28-year-old mind. I think I can still do that stuff. But I'm hanging on to that 28-year-old mind because someday I'm going to. Backflips off the high dive. I'm ready. And that's encouraging. But you know what the most encouraging thing is about this? One is that we get reunited with people who have died. And I don't have time to go into it now, but, but every hint that we have is that these new bodies will look a little bit like us, but better. Like maybe how I looked when I was 22. Oh, that's how I'll look. With bigger muscles and a better mustache. But those people that we love, those Christians who have died and have gone in the grave, are they waiting for us? And when Jesus comes back, we'll be united with the air. And everything in our Bibles, it doesn't say it exactly, but there's so many hints that we're going to be able to recognize each other. And so we'll be united with those people that we love, that we've lost, Christians. And that's good. But then there's this other thing that trumps them all. Because you know what I want to do? I want to touch Jesus. I want to shake his hand. I want to put my arm around him and say, thank you, Jesus. And he's going to be there. He's going to be there in bodily form. And so am I. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to talk with Jesus. I want to have lunch with Jesus. I want to drink with Jesus. I, I, want, to, I want to joke around with Jesus. I want to tell Jesus a story and have him laugh. I want him to tell me a joke and I'll laugh. I want to, I want to run a marathon with Jesus. I want to spend time with Jesus. I want to sing with Jesus. I want to pray with Jesus. I want, I want to be with Jesus. I want him there in physical form so I can touch him. I want that when he sees me, he says, John, how you doing? Give me a hug. I'm going to go and I'm going to give him a hug. And he's going to be solid. And I'm looking forward to that. And you should be too. Because that's where we're going. Either when we die, we'll go immediately in the presence of heaven. When Jesus comes back, we'll be reunited with our bodies. We'll be there in physical presence. Or if we're walking on this earth, when Jesus comes back, we'll rise up in the middle of the air. We'll get new bodies, and Jesus is going to grab us all, take us to heaven, and we'll live with Jesus forever in bodily form. Would you stand with me and pray? Please, stand and pray. Oh, God. What an encouragement that is. What an encouragement it is to know that your son is coming back to get us. Lord, your apostle John wrote almost the last verse in the book of Revelation, almost the last book in our last verse in our Bible, he says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And like John who was looking forward to you coming back, Lord, we're in the same boat. We want you to come back. We want you to come back soon. Lord God, we look we look forward to the day of the Lord, that day when your son will come back. And on that day, we'll hear the shout of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call. On that day, you will come in the air on a cloud in bodily form in all your glory. And on that day, you will resurrect the bodies of Christians who have died and you'll transform the bodies of living Christians and make us into imperishable, immortal, glorious bodies. And on that day, you will return and you will bless us with crowns and other rewards that we don't deserve. And you'll look upon us and you'll see spotless, blameless, sinful men and women declared righteous because of the death of your son on our behalf. And on that day, you will return in the air and you'll grab us by the hand and you'll take each one of us to heaven. 
And Lord God, on that day, and for every day that follows throughout all eternity, we will live in glorified bodies in your physical presence in a new heaven and a new earth. And we will live with you, Jesus, forever. We will live with you, Jesus, forever. And like the Apostle John, Lord God, all we can do is cry, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.